Guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Of the many biblical images that we, that we have for explaining or comparing the relationship of God to his holy people, there are some that acquire certain privileged status. We're familiar with many of them. The, the image of the flock and the shepherd, the image of children gathered around their father, the image of branches connected to the vine. But of, of these, one in particular is one that is favored by the biblical narrative, and that is the image of bridegroom and bride, a nuptial spousal image. The whole arc of the biblical narrative, beginning with the Garden of Eden, a marriage, passing through the fall, then the exile, the suffering of the people of Israel, their eventual redemption by the Messiah, and then its culmination in what the book of Revelation calls the wedding feast of the Lamb, illustrates the privileged place that this, this image has. <clears throat> now this may seem like a commonplace thing to, to most of you, but it bothers some people, rubs them the wrong way. One author in particular I recently came across argues that this, this nuptial imagery in the scriptures and in the spiritual life actually keeps men away from the church, keeps them away from growth and holiness, as if the church was asking them to be married to Jesus. That image doesn't jive, and the argument is made, well, maybe that's just uh, something that men will leave aside. I'll just set that aside and focus on other ways of entering into communion with God. I'm not sure it's a good idea, though, to set aside these biblical images, this biblical testimony about the nature of the relationship of God and his people, particularly when it's so central. How might we appreciate what this nuptial imagery is meant to convey, and how might we allow it to benefit us spiritually? Well, an insight to this end came through some discussions we've been having in our CIA recently, the last few weeks. At this time of the year, every year, we take up John Paul II's Love and Responsibility. It's a little book that he wrote as a university chaplain, actually, um, back in the 1960s at the University of Lublin. And it's the compilation of the fruits of his reflection after many years of working with young people, counseling them, listening to their, to their conflicts and problems around the question of romantic love. And given his philosophical and theological training, produced this really deeply insightful and, and profound work of, you could say, uh, reflection on the nature of human love. So each year, it's, it's really great to watch these discussions progress. At first, of course, I think there's an interior eye roll as I distribute these, uh, these handbooks that we read. Everyone thinking, okay, great, another lecture on chastity from a celibate, wonderful but the, the lights start to come on. The lights start to come on, and it becomes clear that what John Paul II is doing is showing how chastity isn't a sad and prudish no, but a joyful and a vigorous yes to the possibility of true and authentic joy-filled love. It's grounded in what he calls the personalist principle, 
which is just a, a, you could say, an academic or philosophical term for the basic idea that human happiness flows from loving people and using things, rather than using people and loving things. How this plays out in our romantic lives, of course, is that love, in order to become authentic, has to be purified of its tendency towards use, whether that use occurs in a physical way or in an emotional way. Using someone to satisfy me physically or emotionally is toxic to love because those things prevent me from directing my energy and directing my goodwill and ultimately my love to the person that is who they are in and of themselves rather than what they are for me. This use is sometimes very obvious. We can all probably list off a number of different ways that we could identify, oh yeah, that's a using rather than a loving in relationships we either see of people we know or relationships we see in the media and culture and film. But sometimes that use is very subtle. It's very subtle and creeps in in all sorts of unseen ways. Our selfish human tendencies are persistent and oftentimes they conceal themselves. All this is to really lay the groundwork for this insight that helped me at least see how the nuptial imagery of the Bible actually benefits us spiritually and can offer some real possibility for growth. That point came in a section where John Paul II is talking about responsibility in love. He says, true love is always marked by a sense of responsibility for the other. The fullest sense of love involves these two people giving themselves to each other completely. And this self-giving, it's, a, it's nothing less than a total entrusting of oneself to another person. This amounts to a surrendering of one's own preferences, of one's own freedom, and one's own will for the sake of that other person. And he goes on, the author summarizing this passage, describing his own relationship with his wife. This means that in my marriage, my beloved, my bride, gives herself totally to me. She freely and lovingly gives up her autonomy, and she commits her will to the good of our marriage and the good of our family. Therefore, since she has done this, since she has entrusted herself to me in this unique way, I must in turn have a profound sense of responsibility for her, for her well-being, for her happiness, her emotional security, and her holiness. And likewise, we would say, his wife could look upon her husband, see how he has taken responsibility her and for her, and in return, make an even more generous gift of herself. In a sense, creating a kind of mutual dance of trust and vulnerability and sacrifice and surrender and joy. This is what is so beautiful about the sacrament of matrimony. The freedom that it creates for a husband to say, I no longer need to be preoccupied with my own good. I don't have to worry about my own happiness because I've entrusted it to someone else who can take responsibility for it. I can trust them with that. You, whose good and whose happiness I have made my own. For a wife to be able to look upon her husband and say the same. Freedom, then, in marriage is given away, but by that gift, it is broadened, expanded, and intensified. 
This mutual preoccupation with the good of another person. What a, what a beautiful and artful dance of trust, of surrender, of vulnerability, and of generous interest in wanting to search out and come to know ever more profoundly this other person and what constitutes their good and to place myself at the service of that. This is what answers the desire of every human heart, the desire for communion, for intimacy. Love of husband and wife in this way reflects a heavenly love. It reflects the great mystery of Christ and his church. In other words, this same kind of mutual love that we see ideally in the sacrament between spouses, that same love is what exists between every creature and the Lord. St. Paul's statements in today's second reading could be read read very fruitfully through this lens. I, I would not have you overcome with anxiety, he says, preoccupied with your own happiness. Entrust it to the Lord. Through my baptism, God takes responsibility for my good. God takes responsibility for my happiness and my fulfillment so that I no longer need to be anxious about it myself. Now that is God's job. As a result, I'm free to work freely for him, generously for him, to seek his greater glory, to take my place within his body, within his kingdom, within his church, because I know that he knows me, I know that he's taken me in hand, and I know that he's attentive to me as if I were the only one who was of interest to him. In this way, we know the church is set up in such a way as to promote this kind of life. The sacraments. The sacraments are there as those forms of expression of that bond of love. The Eucharist, a kind of token, a reminder that I've withheld nothing from you, that I am trustworthy, in fact. He offers us everything he has to the point that nothing more could possibly be expected of him. And the moral law of the church. These aren't rules that I use in order to assure myself or other people or God of my righteousness. These are the boundaries that are in place to guard the covenant of love. Just like every relationship that is precious to me has boundaries. These are the things that are in place to guard and protect that relationship, which is so fundamental. And so, just as in a relationship, there are things that I don't do, activities that I have, that I relinquish. There are places that I don't go. There are relationships that I, that I don't cultivate or do cultivate as the result of this, and so on and so forth. I don't do those things because they're outside of the bounds of this pact of mutual trust, of sacrifice, and of vulnerability that is precious. This, I believe, is the nuptial meaning of these scriptural images that are so important and so privileged. And this is how we can profit from them. I assent to the truth that God takes responsibility for the good and the flourishing of each of us. And that I'm now free to surrender to life in and with the church in obedience and fidelity. I have to confront again and again this difficult question. 
What are the places in my life where I have withheld something for my relationship with my heavenly love? Where I'm, in effect, saying, Lord, I'm not really sure you're going to take care of my good. And so I'm, I'm going to have to hedge my bets. I'm going to have to withhold something just in case you fall through. I hold on to these backup strategies I have, whatever they may be, my comforts, my autonomy, my sins, my attachments, my self-reliance, my own plans. I'll use those if you don't come through for me. We're called to surrender those things, not because it hurts him, but because it prevents us from entering into this beautiful communion, this joyful dance of trust and surrender. This hardness of heart that prevents us from doing so, the scriptures come at that very, very directly, again and again, as we hear in our scripture readings today. And if I may commit one of the cardinal sins of homiletics, which is to read to you during a homily, I have a good excuse. I only came across this in a few minutes just before Mass during my meditation. I don't expect it all to make complete sense to you, but those with ears to hear, let them hear. For someone to say in earnest, not as I will, but as you will, Lord, is not possible without participating in the anguish of the Mount of Olives, the agony in the garden. At a decisive point on the Christian way, nature must enter with Christ into death. Its straightforward growth must snap. Its insight be plunged into night. Its carefully nurtured self-understanding into ill-treatment. It cannot be other than a hard and bitter battle. If the sinner were not hardened, then God would not have to become hard with him. And even if it were the tenderest heart before God, like the heart of Jesus or Mary, it would still have to face the hardness for the sake of others. Is it any wonder then that we all flee this moment, that Christians defer and delay it, suppress it, and ultimately try to forget about it? One can paint the history of the church in this light as the history of all the things she offers to God as substitutes in order to escape the real act of faith. A difficult and challenging invitation, but one that makes us to be who we are. Our halting, incomplete, but ever more hopefully sincere attempts to make that faith-filled response. And when we do make that response, it begins to radiate into our other relationships, the other parts of our lives, particularly our marriages, but many different, many different kinds of relationships. We begin to recognize those past hurts and difficulties that start to creep in and, and accumulate resentment in our hearts, create a lack of trust that we're probably not that interested in one another's good or working for that good anymore. It can give freedom, having surrendered to our heavenly love, that this person to whom I am bound, with whom I share my life, this person can't make me happy. That's to put a terrible burden on them, to expect them to do that, a burden that is impossible for them ultimately to carry. Because only God can do that. Only God can do that. How many of our relationships are poisoned by that, that secret resentment that we carry, that you've not made me happy, you've not fulfilled me? 
A liberating joy awaits us in this trusting dance of surrendering that anxiety for our own good and our own happiness to Christ. After all, who of us doesn't want to be able to say, if we're married, that after decades with this person, I am more in love, not less than I was when I first married them. So may we say of our divine beloved, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.